Um, and I forgot to mention, you might be smelling something at the moment. Uh, that's not just deceptive just to keep you here. There is actually food that is available after the service. So please do carry on those conversations, grab some food, and please do carry on those conversations after the service as well. But we're going to turn to God's Word now. So if you have a Bible to hand, um, please do take those up. If you don't have a Bible, there are some, I think, around that Nick's going to bring around. So just stick a pour in the air, uh, and Nick will bring those around to you. Great, but we're, we're in the book of John, John's Gospel. So please turn to John chapter 19. So if you're new here, if you, you haven't joined us before, we normally what we do is we like to work through books of the Bible. So um, I think the church started John about five years ago, and they've taken it in kind of three big chunks. We're kind of getting there. Uh, we're almost there. Um, we're towards the end now. So John chapter 19, verses 28 through to 37. Now as we, as we come to this, uh, as we come to God's word, I just want to say, these are the final few moments of Jesus at the cross. Now, I, I get that it's a scene that many of us might be quite familiar with. And so my prayer this afternoon as we begin is this, that, that we wouldn't just think, oh, I've heard this hundreds of times, but that we would come to it afresh. That in our hearts we'd say, God, please, by your spirit, would you challenge me? Would you convict me? Would you show me something afresh? That we would come and see our beautiful Savior who gave everything for us. So let me pray that now, and then we'll read it, and then we'll look into it. So let me pray. Father, we come to this scene. It's a heavy scene. It's harrowing. Just to think that you as Father sent your one and only Son to die on a cross in a gruesome way. Father, help us to... Not think, oh, I've heard this hundreds of times before, but help us to come humbly before the cross of Christ and see the beauty and the majesty of our King who laid his life down for us. Please, Lord, help us to see more of him now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Great, let me read chapter 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Great. Well, not great. It's a, it's a pretty horrendous scene. 
But I want us to focus this afternoon on these three words that Jesus says, his, his final words at the cross. It is finished. These are arguably three of the most powerful words spoken in human history. We see people often share it and quote it as words of comfort, of hope and assurance. But why? What is finished? Why are these the last words that John records of what Jesus says as he gives up his spirit? So think about those words for a minute. It is finished. Actually, in, in any context, they are quite powerful words. And those words are usually spoken by somebody who has some authority, some power, some control over a situation. Let me give you an example. Um, I've been to the dentist many times in my life. My teeth are a, a wreck. I had lots of sweets when I was a kid. I didn't tell my parents. Uh, I didn't brush my teeth very well. I'm married to a dentist's daughter. He gave me an earful. Anyway, um, every time I go to the dentist, it's not fun, right? You hear that drill. Oh, it's a horrible sound. Even when you're numb, it's a horrible feeling. And it's so joyful. It brings me so much joy when the dentist puts the drill down and says, it is finished. The work is done. And I'm so relieved, I try and smile with my half-numb face to say, thank you, thank you. <laughs> or it's like a referee in a sports game. You know, when the final minutes are there, the score is so tense, all eyes are on the ref. Blow your whistle, blow your whistle. But until that referee blows his whistle, it is not finished. They have the authority, the power, the control. It is finished. These are powerful words that are spoken. But you look at the scene here, and Jesus doesn't seem like he's got much authority here. When you look at Jesus and you see what's happening to him, you don't get the sense that he's actually in control of the situation. In fact, it seems like it's the complete opposite. Jesus seems like he has no control, no power, no authority as he's nailed to a Roman cross. Instead, it's a picture of utter weakness. He is bloodied and bruised, exhausted and exposed. So how is it in that situation that Jesus can say, it is finished? See, the worst thing is, it's not just that he's exhausted and exposed, but he's staring death right in the face. Here's the reality. I think as human beings, we hate that feeling of losing control. I really don't like it. And I think our culture is almost obsessed with trying to get as much control on our situations as possible. We've become so drawn into building walls around our lives and our houses to try and keep the bad stuff out, to keep all the good things in, control it as much as possible. And we do that with our bodies. We try and control what we eat, the diets that we do, the exercise that we have. And then when threats like COVID come, we're all about hands, face, space. Keep that out. Let's control it as much as possible. And when we lose control, we, we hate that feeling. It's like when mini budgets get announced that rock everything. It's dizzying, it's unsettling. And we try and grasp control in our lives, but the reality is this. There is a moment in our lives when all of us will have no control whatsoever. There will be a moment when we will feel really exposed, utterly helpless. And that is the moment when man or woman, rich or poor, whatever your background, your history, your story, we will feel our weakness and we will feel that we don't control anything. And that is the exact moment that Jesus is facing right now, as he faces his death. He looks like every other human being. He looks like all of us sitting in this room, 
No control, no power, utter weakness. So how is it that this man, who's claiming to be the savior of the world, how can he say it is finished? What does he mean by that? Now if you look at the details of the passage that John's portraying here for us, we just get to see how weak he is in his death. See, he's not sitting, he's not lying in his bed, surrounded by his friends and his family at his bedside. He's nailed to a cross. All his friends and family have deserted him. He's completely at the mercy of the Roman soldiers and the Jewish leaders. So here's the so-called savior of the world who says, I am thirsty. So what do you do when you're thirsty? What do I do? We go and get a drink. If you're thirsty right now, what do you do? You get one of those bottles that you've got. Quite a few people have got them. When they fall over, they clink and they make a funny noise. But you pick it up, you grab it, open it, take a drink. You have the control, you have the power to do that. But the so-called savior of the world doesn't even have power to do that. He is at the mercy of those around him, the Roman soldiers. And instead of a glass of water, what do they bring him? A jar of wine vinegar. I got really excited. I looked in our cupboard. Here's wine vinegar. Okay, I, didn't, I haven't tried this before. But if I'm thirsty, let's try it. Oh. I should have tried that before. Oh. Um, <coughs> my dentist is going to hate me as well. Um, <coughs> oh, wow, I should have really tried that before. It's, okay, trust me, that will wake you up. That is really not very nice. Okay, um, if you want to try it at home, try it. But here's the reality. I've, just tasting that, you've, you, you sense how horrendous it was for Jesus to taste even that on his mouth. What he was looking for was water. He was thirsty. But he had no choice but to drink whatever they gave him. He's at the mercy of the Roman soldiers. Then he's at the mercy of the Jewish leaders. They seem to be the one calling all the shots. They're saying, look, Pilate, break their legs and get them off the crosses. Jesus has no say in that whatsoever. Let me just help you understand the leg-breaking thing. What is that about? Because as we see the details of this, you realize actually how, in how much weakness Jesus was. See, breaking someone's legs is not just a painful thing to do, but you need to understand what's going on at crucifixion. Crucifixion wasn't just about the fact that you had nails in your hands and your feet and you were just up there on a cross. The whole point was that it was a slow, slow death of suffocation. As you hang there, your lungs are compressed so you can't breathe. And so what you need to do to breathe is you need to pull yourself up with your arms and push yourself up with your feet. Now that's hard enough as it is, but imagine trying to do that with nails in your hands and your feet. Excruciating, burning pain in your nerves every time you pull yourself up. Jesus had to do that just to breathe. But it's not only that. He was a carpenter. He knew how to handle wood. He knew what it took to sand wood down to make it nice and smooth this wood would not have been smooth. His back is already shredded from the harrowing torture that he's had before, the flogging. And there, every time he tries to breathe, he pulls himself up and splinters are digging into his back. Can you imagine the pain that Jesus went through? See, drinking wine vinegar, what it does is it wakes you up. It wakes your senses up so that you can carry on in that pain. It's cruel. 
That is what Jesus went through for you and me. And actually then, in, in some ways, the breaking of legs was actually merciful because it would speed up the process because you, you couldn't push yourself up anymore. You would suffocate and die. Do you grasp how immense the suffering was for Jesus at this moment? Do you see his utter weakness? Everything in this passage right now suggests that Jesus is under the power of the authorities and that he's under the power of death. He has no control. So how is it that he can say it is finished? See, when you read it on the surface, it sounds like he's saying, oh, such relief, my, my misery's over, it's all over. Suffering's gone. But John wants us to see something much more than that. In verse 35, the man who saw it has given testimony. He's speaking about himself. He was there, and he testifies so that we might believe and see what he sees about Jesus. John wants us to see that Jesus isn't like other criminals, condemned criminals dying on the cross. He isn't just some other man, but he is someone greater. Someone who has the right to say it is finished. Someone we can trust and entrust our lives to. That is who John wants us to see. John goes even further. He actually wants us to see that Jesus, even in his final moments here in this scene, never lost control. He wants us to see that Jesus always have, has and always will have authority. Even in utter weakness, Jesus is lifted up, exalted in complete power and control. Let me show you. Look at verse 30. When he had received a drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is fascinating. You see that word there for gave up used here is used throughout John's gospel and the other gospels when it speaks of Jesus being handed over to be crucified. It's the same word used when Judas betrays Jesus. It's the same word used when Pilate hands him over to his death. All the time we, we read the gospel with this word and it seems like there are these people controlling Jesus' life continually handing him over. But then John comes here and he says, no, Jesus is the one who hands over his life willingly. It's his life to give and not to be taken. Remember, back in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he says, I will lay my life down willingly for my sheep and then take it up again. He's been telling us all along. These people keep trying to hand him over, thinking they have control over his life. But no, he says here, you know, I lay my life down. I will hand over my spirit when the time is right, when it is all done, when it is finished. John wants us to see that Jesus actually never lost control. He couldn't lose control because he had a greater plan, a greater purpose to all of this. See, when Jesus says those three words, it is finished, Jesus isn't saying, oh, phew, the pain's over now. The words there are specifically, it's accomplished, it's done. I have done everything I came here to do. That is what Jesus is saying. But for what purpose? What was this great plan of God that meant Jesus had to die in this gruesome, horrendous, horrific way? What did Jesus mean when he cried out, it is finished? That is what John wants us to be seeing in this passage. So here's, what, here's how we're going to look at it. Did you notice as I read this passage, did you see three times it says, Scripture is fulfilled, Scripture is fulfilled. Verse 28, verse 36, verse 37. John deliberately picks those out, and we're just going to look at those briefly each in turn to see what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. And whether you've looked at this passage or heard about the cross hundreds of times in your life, or whether it's completely new to you, 
I pray that this as- these three aspects of it is finished would challenge us, would comfort us, would change us. So here's the first. Jesus cries out, it is finished, because firstly, he's the king who suffered. He's the king who suffered. Verse 28, I am thirsty. We've seen it already, right? Jesus was thirsty. He was in excruciating pain. But if you go deeper than that, we see that these words are actually picked up in two psalms written thousands of years before. Psalm 22. That was referenced last week. You know when Jesus' garment's being divided by the soldiers? That's in the same psalm, Psalm 22. And we get to Psalm 22, verse 15, and the writer of the psalm says this, My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth because of his thirst. Then there's another psalm, Psalm 69, that says, They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And when you look at those psalms, what you realize is that these two psalms are written by King David. Written by King David about the the chosen king of God's people. He's writing about himself, but also about the Messiah to come. And if you read those psalms, you read of this king who is going to be surrounded by his enemies, baying for his blood. A king who would suffer pain and affliction. A king who would cry out to God in his suffering that God might have mercy upon him. And here we are, some thousand years later, after King David. And here is his great, 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 great descendant with a sign above his head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So here is that true promised king that David wrote about, who is now enduring exactly what the Psalms said, surrounded by his enemies, baying for his blood, crying out to his father. So as Jesus hangs on the cross, as he says those words, I am thirsty, he most certainly had those psalms in his mind. And he's saying to them, I'm confirming to you, I am that king that you've been waiting for. I am the Messiah. But here, what sort of king was he? See, there's another time in John's gospel when Jesus was thirsty. Where the king one day sat outside in the heat of of the day by a well. And a woman approaches and he asks her, Will you give me a drink? A few months ago, um, one of the old ministry trainers, Iowa, he sent me a video of someone walking down Walworth Road. It's, um, Walworth Road is just off Elephant and Castle. It's a big road with lots of shops in it. And he was like, oh, have you seen? There's this person walking down. I was like, who? And he sent me a video. And it was now King Charles, back then Prince Charles. I said, like, what is he doing in Elephant and Castle? But there he was, walking down. And I thought about it. This is where my thoughts sometimes go, randomly. And I thought, oh, imagine if I bumped into him that day. Imagine if he'd come and said, will you give me a drink? What would you do? I would drop everything I had and give him anything I had in my possession. You know, whatever it is. Maybe not that one. Um, I'd give him some, yeah, give him some water so he, could, he isn't thirsty. See, when we think of a king, we often think, oh, we need to serve them, we need to honor them, we need to glorify them. But look at the king that we have. Look at Jesus. Because on that day, he didn't take any drink from her. Actually, instead, he offers this woman a drink of living water. Water that would never make her thirsty again. Water that would become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, though he was thirsty, he took on that thirst that she might not. That she might realize that in Jesus, there is this king who would suffer for her, who would thirst for her, so that she might have this living water that leads to eternal life. See, the Samaritan woman there, John chapter 4, she'd been thirsty in her soul her entire life. She'd been trying to quench it with anything that might help. In her case, it was in human relationships. 
She'd had multiple partners. But she'd always ended up thirsty until that moment when she met her king. Do you find yourself thirsting in this world? Do you find yourself constantly chasing, trying to find some sort of hope, some sort of meaning, some sort of purpose in your life? Well, Jesus wants you to know that you can only find that truly in him and in him alone. Here is the king who says, who comes and says, I am thirsty as he bled on a cross for you so that you might not be. Here is the king who comes to say, come to me, trust me and drink from me and you will never thirst again. What sort of king would lay their life down for you, for me? A king that loves you. A king that longs to see you never thirst again. A king that wants to give you hope in a hopeless world. A king that is there surrounded by enemies, taking that sour vinegar so that we might drink that sweet, refreshing, life-giving water of Jesus. It is finished, says Jesus. And in Jesus you will find eternal the fullness of eternal life with him, where those words, I am thirsty, will never be heard again, will never be spoken again. Come to Jesus. Come to the king who suffered for you so that you might never have that sense of spiritual thirst in your life ever again. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Here's the second reason why he says it is finished, because he's a lamb who was sacrificed. Look at verse 36. Here's the second um, passage. Not one of his bones will be broken. Remember the religious leaders, we've spoken about them. They went to Pilate and said, look, we need to break their legs and take them down. The reason is because the next day was a Sabbath day where they would go to worship God. And in Deuteronomy, it says in their law, it said, look, you cannot have a a person hanging on a tree because it's cursed. But it's not only they are cursed, but the land is cursed too. So they had to remove them before the Sabbath. And in verse 31, you notice it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because that special Sabbath was the Passover day. It was a festival when they would sacrifice tons of lambs to remember how God had passed over for them. Now, if you don't know what Passover is, let me quickly remind you. It was a story back in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus when the people of God were enslaved in Egypt by an enemy of God, this Pharaoh who was oppressive, who was cruel, And God sends Moses and he demands, let my people go. And Pharaoh refuses time and time again. Until the last time God says, okay, fine, that's it. I'm going to rain judgment upon you, upon Egypt. And that night, every single firstborn son would die as a sign of God's judgment. But God made a way for salvation. But the only way you could rescue that child was to slay a lamb that would act as a substitute for the son They had to slaughter that lamb and then get the blood and paint it on the doorposts. And when the angel of the Lord, when God's judgment descended and they saw the blood, they would pass over that household and move on. That is what is in view. Now with that in mind then, John brings us back to the cross. And he drops these little clues that link together. So a little bit like the game, Linky. Have you ever played Linky? Does anyone know that? No. Okay, have you ever seen the movie? No, the TV show Catchphrase? No, wow, I feel really sad now. Basically, those games, you get a clue, and then if you don't get it, you get a second clue. If you don't get it, you get a third clue, and you see, oh, you see the picture. Okay, forget it. Um, I'm sad. All right, let's keep moving on. Okay, so here's the first clue that John gives. Verse 29, the hyssop plant. What is this hyssop plant? 
It's a specific plant that was used when? The first time we hear about it is in Exodus at the Passover. You would paint the doorpost with the blood of the lamb using what? A hyssop plant. And that continues. That hyssop plant is used again and again in a sacrificial system. So back then when the reader hears hyssop, their minds go straight to sacrificial lamb, the Passover. That is what they're thinking. Second clue. He then goes to verse 36. Not one of his bones will be broken. See, at the Passover meal, they were to take this lamb that was unblemished, whole, perfect. And God says, as you eat this lamb, make sure you do not break any bones. The sacrificial lamb had to be unblemished and pure and whole. Do you see what John is trying to point to? Here's the third thing. Early on in John's gospel, he speaks of another John, John the Baptist, who sees Jesus And he goes and tells the watching world, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so people back then would have been thinking, What is he on about? But now we come full circle and we see, Here is that very sacrificial Lamb. Here is the one that is being sacrificed on behalf of all the people. And so as these people are getting ready for preparation day, slaughtering these lambs, as they approach the Passover to recall oh, God's great Passover, passing over of his judgment, they forget, they miss the point that they are staring right at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His blood being poured out, the hyssop plant covered in the blood of Jesus. No broken bones. Pure. And so when Jesus cries out, it is finished, he is saying, look, I am that final sacrificial lamb. He is coming to say, you don't need to slaughter lambs anymore. You don't need to have a preparation day anymore because I am it. Because those who trust in the Lamb of God, in his blood, God's judgment would pass over once and for all. That is what Jesus was saying when it is finished. Perhaps some of us are sitting here this afternoon and you have this sense of guilt in your heart. I don't know what you've done, but God does. Perhaps you've mistreated God. You know that you have. You've mistreated the one who gives you life. Or perhaps you've mistreated others around you who God has made in his image. Or perhaps there is a deep-rooted sin in your heart, in your life right now, that you are really battling with. And you're sitting here this afternoon stewing in guilt. Others of us might be feeling that shame. The shame that your sin has been found out or that it might be found out. But the shame that you think of, if people knew my thoughts and desires, man. See, all of those, the guilt and the shame makes us feel really unworthy before God. Makes us think, actually, I do deserve God's judgment. If that's us, then we need to look to Jesus and see, he's saying, it is finished. His blood is now smeared on the post of the cross so that God's judgment would not fall on you, but fall on him on the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Come and find shelter in Jesus. That was the Father's plan. That was his purpose, that his Son would come and be the sacrifice for his people who would take on God's judgment as a Lamb so that we wouldn't have to. It is finished. God's judgment has passed over us once and for all because of Jesus, the Lamb of God. We need to believe in it. Here's the third reason, the third and final reason. It is finished because he's the righteous son who was pierced. 
Here's the final fulfillment. You need to work a little bit harder. This is the last thing. You need to work a little bit harder here just to link the things that are going on. But that, that same verse 36, not one of his bones will be broken, is also quoted in another psalm, in Psalm 34, where God speaks of the Lord who delivers this person, this righteous person who's under great pain and suffering. And he says, the Lord delivers him from them all and protects all his bones. See, what John wants us to see is that Jesus isn't only the unblemished lamb. He wants us to see that Jesus is the righteous one of God, that God is protecting. And it's this righteous one, the righteous son of God, who comes to be pierced for us. See, if you go back to the scene here in the cross, after Jesus gives up his spirit, remember the soldiers go to break the legs, to remove the bodies. And so the soldiers go and they break the first person on the right, then the second person on the left, and they come to Jesus and they realize he's dead already. So one of the soldiers then gets his spear and he stabs it into Jesus' side. Blood and water pour out. He is really dead. See, there we get confirmation that he is truly human. He is God in flesh, as John said earlier on in John chapter 1. There is Jesus, both fully God and fully man, now dead on the cross. But the meaning again is deeper. Because John wants us to see something else. Verse 37, he says, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Here he's quoting from Zechariah. He's one of, one of the prophets later on in the Old Testament. They will look on the one they have pierced. And when you get to Zechariah, you hear that the one who is pierced is like the firstborn son, the only son who has come to die for his people. And that day the people will mourn. It will be a sad, sad day and yet on that day as people remember that that um, the prophecy of Zechariah and this they think back to Zechariah chapter 12 they will start to remember the rest of the prophecy and they think of Zechariah chapter 13 and they hear these words on that day on this day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity See, as the righteous son of God is pierced, as blood and water flowed out, the blood confirmed that, yes, this is the sacrificial lamb that was given for the people. That was what the blood confirmed. But then as the water flowed out, it confirmed that he is the fountain. The fountain that comes to cleanse us once and for all, to make us right before God, to clean us from our sin and impurity. See, Jesus not only came to suffer and to die for us, He didn't only come as a sacrifice of God's judgment, but as the righteous one who comes to cleanse us from our sin once and for all so that we might be called righteous and he might be called unrighteous. So that we can now stand in eternity before God and call him our father. Here's the thing. This week, as I I reflected on this passage and I started to see more of what John wants us to see, of all that Jesus did at the cross, I kept asking myself, why, why would he do this? Why would Jesus do this? Why would he go through all of this? And the more I reflected on it, I realized he did this because of me. He did this for me. He did this for you. Why would he? And the more I meditated on the cross and all that John was pointing to, I started to realize, actually, the cross is shining light on my own heart, on my own sin. The more I see, uh, the more I see Jesus on the cross, I started to see, actually, I am thirsty 
but I keep looking in the wrong place. The more I saw the cross, the more I started to see, I actually am deserving of God's judgment because I haven't loved him as I should. The more I looked at the cross, I realized, actually, I am unrighteous. How my thoughts and my desires are not good. The more I saw the cross, I started to realize how blinded I am by my own sin. But the beauty is this. The power is this. That is exactly why Jesus came. That is why he went to the cross for me, for you. That is why Jesus cries out, it is finished. And that is why those are the most comforting words we could ever hear. To know because of Jesus I will no longer thirst. To know because of Jesus I no longer sit under God's judgment but now under his blessing. To know because of Jesus I am no longer seen as unrighteous but declared righteous that I am cleansed by his sacrifice. It is finished are the last words Jesus says. That is why as Christians we, we should delight. We should be filled with joy because it is finished. Jesus said so as he died on the cross and he showed so as he gave up his spirit. And that is a reality for us now, today. We can live in freedom because Jesus won. It means that with Paul we can confess, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. With Paul we can say, I rejoice always no matter our circumstances because it is finished. Now there will be days when we will feel that pain, that suffering. God knows that. But he wants you to see Jesus, to hear that echo, it is finished in our hearts. So as we close, let me ask you this. How much do you take those words, it is finished, to heart? What do those words mean for you? Do you really believe it? Do you really see what John wants us to see? Do you see all that Jesus has done for you? Perhaps you're sitting here and you're not sure, you're new to Christian things. Or perhaps you've, you've been following Jesus for a while but you've lost sight of this recently. And here's my call to you. Keep looking to the cross because this is the heart of the gospel. Look at what Jesus did and keep asking yourself, why would anyone do that? But more than that, why would God, why would the Son of God do that for me? And start seeing what John wants us to see. He is the king that suffered for you. He is the lamb that bled for you. He is the righteous son who was pierced for you. And ask God to show you to help you to grasp all that Jesus said and did for you when he said it is finished. And if we are seeing that this afternoon, if that is a, a fresh reminder of all that Jesus has done, then let's thank him. Let's praise him and worship him for all he's done with fullness of joy. And let's keep looking to him. Because he's your suffering king. He's our lamb who died for us, the savior pierced for us, who gave it all so that we may no longer thirst, that we might be free of God's judgment and that we might be called into his kingdom. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, you know what's going on in our hearts right now as we sit here. Father, by your spirit, please, Lord, help us to hear those words, it is finished. Help us to see the Lord Jesus crucified, the righteous one pierced for us, the lamb slain for us.
the king who suffered for us. Father, help us to grasp those, the depth of those words, to know that Jesus is Lord and Savior of all. And may that bring us to worship him, to glorify him, not just now, but with our lives. And we pray this for his glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.